0: Thanks, John, and good evening, everybody. You know, there's something quite compelling about a really well-told tragic tale about witnessing the decline and fall of one whose former nobility has been lost under a sea of desperation and wickedness. And not many people could write as engaging a tragedy, as well as, of course, the great English playwright William Shakespeare. I mean, he loved to write about the fall of tyrants. Uh, Julius Caesar, Richard III, and of course, the famous and and my favourite, Macbeth. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the play Macbeth, can't remember when you were doing your HSC on it or or something like that, Macbeth starts out as, as a noble hero. He wins battles for his king. But unfortunately, on the way, he encounters some witches that tell him that he is the one who is destined to become king. And so Macbeth, with his ambition stirred and the encouragement of his wife, he then makes the fateful decision to murder the existing king. And he takes his place as the king of Scotland. And in the process, he actually becomes a paranoid tyrant. And near the end of the play, when his enemies are on his doorstep, with his life unravelling around him and people abandoning him, his wife, who by this stage has descended into madness, finally dies. And that leads Macbeth to give this stirring quote about the futility of life. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps at this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing I mean Shakespeare could write well today we're going to witness another tragedy a tragedy of another king who had fallen from grace into tyranny Another king who consults with a witch, who faces an army that will bring about his doom and then despairs at the futility of his life. It's a tragedy that actually has much to teach us about the fate of wickedness, the fate of going against God in your life. But it also has a great deal to tell us and to point us to what the hope-filled alternative to that is. So in today's passage, what we're going to do is we're going to set David aside for a little while and we're going to focus on King Saul. Now, when we actually encounter King Saul in in chapter 28, he is extremely stressed. He's in a state of very high stress. He's desperate, he's terrified, and he's got good reason to be, two reasons, in fact. The first is that the Philistines have invaded again. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 28. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. Now, have a look at the map that's on your screen here, and you can see how this was all set up. The Philistine camp, you can see, is on the north side there at Shunem. They'd taken their troops up the coastal plain and across Israel and camped north of where Saul was, effectively cutting Israel in half. And so Saul is forced to stop at Gilboa on the south side of the wide Jezreel Valley that is the main valley that connects the Jordan Valley in the east um, with the coast. And when, when Saul sees the Philistine camp gathered on the opposite side of the, of the valley, he's overwhelmed by fear. Chapter 29 actually makes clear that this time it was all the Philistine forces. This wasn't some small raiding party. It was the whole lot. And the the army across that he could see camped across the valley was huge. But there's a second reason that Saul had started to panic. God was silent have a look at verse 6, you can see it there. See, when Saul tries to inquire of God for wisdom about the how, how the battle will go or what he should do, God gives no reply. Now that shouldn't really surprise us after all that Saul's done. Saul's disobeyed God, he's slaughtered the Lord's priests and their families, he's hunted down the Lord's anointed David. So, so you know, when Saul say, oh, now I want a favour from you, God. Well, let me tell you, God's not picking up the phone. Nothing Saul tries gets so much as even a syllable of response. He's got nowhere to turn to now for guidance. His kingdom faces disaster, he's terrified, and he's left to face an enemy that he dreads, and he's completely alone. God is... Silent. And that is an ominous sign. And that's where the information that we're given in verse 3 becomes particularly relevant. You see, in the earlier days uh, of Saul's kingship, he could always turn to Samuel for guidance. But once again, we're reminded for the second time in the last couple of chapters, Samuel is dead. And in those better days before, Saul had also been a better king and he'd made some better judgments. And one thing that he'd done right was actually to drive all the mediums and the spiritists out of Israel. You see, three times in the book of Leviticus, God makes it clear that those practices were not to be permitted amongst God's people. But the verse that I want you to look at, the verses I want you to look at is in Deuteronomy um, because there's a very significant passage there. It's from chapter 18 and I'll read it to you. It should be on your screens. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead." Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. And so Saul was correct when he drove out the mediums and the spiritists. You know, God's people don't go to dead ancestors for advice and they don't put their hope in or seek guidance from the stars. They are not to try to manipulate God through incantations or magic or rituals. See, God's people were to be different from the nations that's what the nations did and so they would have not practice the occult stuff that all of the nations and the people around them tend to do because they've got god as their god but now why is that information also relevant well because saul the king that israel asked for the king like the nations is about to make a very faithful decision You see, desperate times call for desperate measures and Saul is desperate and he started to panic. You see, every other avenue he's turned down to try and work out what the future holds for him has met with silence. And he can't turn to Samuel anymore because he's dead, but maybe. And his desperate mind goes to a place that it should never have gone. With all other avenues for guidance closed, look at verse 7. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. Wow. I mean, Saul has, has now fallen from a great height. Israel's king had rebelled against God's word, slaughtered his priests, pursued David, the Lord's anointed, with murderous intent, and now to, well, quote Star Wars, his journey to the dark side is now complete. The king of God's people has now become completely like one of the pagan nations around them. And in the depths of moral exhaustion, he resorts to the occult. Well, you'd think that having driven out all of the mediums and the spiritists, that Saul is now going to have a, a tough time trying to find one, surely. But it actually appears that he's attended by a bunch of people that know exactly where you can find one. He's not really surrounded by godly men. His servants rattled off an address as soon as he asked for it. Oh yeah, there's one on, at Endor, just a few kilometers away. But that location, Endor, poses a real issue. See, have a look at the map again. Israel are camped at Jezreel on the shoulder of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines are across the valley of Shunem and Endor is five kilometers behind the Philistines on the other side of the hill. That means Saul's got to find a way to get around the Philistine lines without being spotted. It's a it's a recklessly risky mission. But Saul's desperate. And so Saul sneaks off in disguise and he walks the eight, ten to ten kilometers that night to Endor. And he arrives at the woman's place at night. And this is what he says Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, in verse nine, Surely you know what Saul has done? He's cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? She's kind of saying, are you not nuts if Saul found out he'd kill me? And her reply reply is, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't, says Saul, who is in disguise. But have a look at the choice of words that Saul uses to actually reassure her. Um, There in verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. I mean, listen to that. To to reassure a medium using the term as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, it's the equivalent of a husband being in bed with another woman and swearing on the life of his wife. It's as if Saul's got no conception of, of what he's really saying here. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know, a medium is somebody who can, claims that they can commune with the dead. That they, in a sense, that they are a medium. They're in between. They act as a mouthpiece for the departed person. And so she asks Saul, well, who do you want brought up then? From the grave, that is. And Saul says, bring up Samuel for me. And so she brings up Samuel. Now, perhaps she did not know which Samuel this man was talking about, but when she sees Samuel, she screams because she realises this isn't just any Samuel, local Samuel from the area. This is the Samuel. This is the great prophet and judge who led Israel, Samuel. Who would want to consult Samuel so badly in the middle of the night a short walk from the Philistine army and who would be so confident that Saul is not going to kill her for being a medium? Look, this woman is no dummy. She works it out. That the man in front of her, actually, look how tall he is. It's Saul himself. So there's Samuel and Saul together, and that's a bad place for a medium to be, or so she thought. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me, your Saul? The king said to her, don't be afraid, what do you see? And the woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. Now, Samuel did not actually physically rise from the dead and appear in front of everybody. Only the medium can see him. This appearance of Samuel was a vision that God had given to the woman. And so Saul wants to do a bit of a double check. Well, what's he look like? And her description is telling. She saw an old man coming up, and certainly Samuel was old when Saul knew him, But then she describes him as wearing a robe. And that bit of information was another ominous reminder to Saul about the very last time that Saul had met Samuel. His last interaction with Samuel was back in chapter 15 where Saul takes hold of Samuel's cloak as he's leaving his robe and tears it. And then Samuel looks at the torn bit of robe in his hand and his reply was, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one who is better than you. So there once more is Samuel, and there once more is the robe. So Saul believes the woman, and he bows with his face to the ground to honour the presence of Samuel. And so begins this kind of weird conversation where, where Saul has a conversation with Samuel, with the voice of Samuel being really coming through the woman's voice as the medium. And so Samuel says, "Well, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Well, the answer is desperate times call for desperate measures. And Saul says, I am in great distress. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Well, if Saul thought that Samuel was going to give him comfort and guidance, he's mistaken. Now, Samuel's speech has got two major parts to it. Uh, The first part he tells him, basically exactly the same things he told him the last time they met, when he was alive, with the incident of the torn robe. He just says, look, i told you this. Um, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord's done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord's done this to you today. He's kind of going, Saul, how is it that you're even asking me your question, mate? Here's your answer, Saul. God's doing what he told you he was going to do. You rebelled against the Lord and so the Lord is now your enemy and he has chosen David to replace you as king. But there is a second part where Samuel does give some new information. He says, and guess what, Saul? Here's a word from God for you. Your time is up. Verse 19. The Lord will deliver both Israel and and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Yeah, now no no doubt Saul gave the medium some pretty good money for this. That's the message you get? Yeah, normally if you're trying to go visit one of these people, you kind of want to hear the good news. Imagine the horoscope in the back of the newspaper read like this Tomorrow you will encounter a series of tall, dark strangers who are going to wipe out your army. A number of difficult choices will be placed before you. However, it won't matter which one you take because you're going to lose either way. You may have some difficulty with an old friend. The living God has decided to act as your enemy. Tomorrow will be a bad day for you to make plans for the future because by the end of the day, you won't have a future and neither will your sons. And you go, well, this is grief, this is awful. You turn to the next page, see what the next day's horoscope says and it's blank. Just got some small print that says, not applicable. Through the medium, you've you got to hear this soul is given by Samuel the bleakest possible news you could be given. The worst of futures. I mean, he was already trembling with fear, and now he's being told this. Tomorrow, you're going to die. And so will your sons. And your army, the army of Israel, is going to be defeated by the Philistines. Your time as king over God's people has come to an end. Friends, this is the bleakest of moments and it's bleak not least because Saul knows in his heart of hearts that it is all true and he's known it for years. He's raged against it, he's murdered, he's bullied, he's schemed, but he knows that it is a futile struggle To steal an image from the book of David, he knows that the writing is on the wall. His doom has now been spoken to him, it has come upon him. This is a tragedy, a real life tragedy. And yet it is also justice, because he was a brutal, murderous tyrant. And the tyrant's rule is at last coming to an end. And that is actually good. You see, in many ways, Saul is an antichrist. What I mean by that is he is one who has raged against God's anointed king. That's what an antichrist is. But all those who stand against the Lord and, the anoint- and his anointed are doomed to fail. And yet while this is just, it really is tragic. Saul is still the king of Israel and and his failure is tragic and his incompetence is tragic and his descent into outright evil is something to be mourned. His demise shouldn't be something to provoke dancing and street parties. It It is a good thing but it is tragically sad and it evokes a sense of vindication and yet at the same time pity because he has fallen from a tremendous height into this state of abject hopelessness and despair. And and I think the way that the narrator portrays Saul at the end of chapter 28 actually makes that point. I think you're you're meant to read this and almost almost sigh and, and, and mourn and see, have a look at verse 20. At Samuel's words, Saul, who was head and shoulders, remember how he's described when we first met him, head and shoulders above every Israelite. Look how he's described now. He falls full length on the ground. The highest brought to the lowest. His head in the dust. Saul has lost all dignity and yet in spite of that, the narrator, notice, makes a point of showing us the pity that Saul evokes. Even the, the woman, the medium, who was at one point terrified at Saul, now looks at him and, 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 and pities him. And so she and his servants who'd, who'd made the journey with him um, try to persuade him to eat, to regain his strength. And he refuses it. But at the end, he, he, he gives in to their pleading and Saul is granted a last meal. And ironically, it is a meal that suits a king. It's suitable for the fallen king of Israel because he gets the fattened calf. But it's a midnight meal and he's pretty much alone with just a handful of servants and a spirit, spiritist for company. And at the end, he goes back to his camp, no doubt dragging his feet dreading the day to come, a dead man walking. Saul was chosen by the people as a king like the nations had and here at his lowest point, we see how much like the nations he had become. He is the demonstration of where a life alienated from God will lead. Look at how Ephesians 2 describes the situation that the nations, that is, the non-Jewish peoples of the world, the Gentiles, were in before Jesus came. Verse 12, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. Now friends, I want to say that I promise you there is good news coming. But before I talk about it, I want to talk tragedy because that's what this passage is. It is a tragedy. And it's about the tragedy of life without God. You know, humanity in our arrogance has presumed to push God out of our lives. And, and, And we foolishly think that leaving God behind and pushing him out actually makes us free, that it actually liberates us. Because we can just go out and do what we want and and, and God can just stay out of it. Now, in its extreme form, like the muscular atheism of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, this is seen this as 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 empowering. They offer this placebo, a sugar pill to lost humanity, and claim that it's a cure for our, our longing for purpose and meaning. our our inbuilt longing to know and be known by God, and they say, hey, cast that all off, people. You don't need any God. It's time to just grow up and face our cold materialist world the way it really is. And in doing so, they paper over the inherent hopelessness of that worldview, of life without God in it and they paper it over with a veneer of intellectual pride with an I'm not afraid kind of bravado. Life without God is freedom. Life without God is is enlightenment. It's a desperate measure for desperate times. It's blind to reality and it is a cold and brutal message to those all of us who live in a world and face the certainty of death. Where we left Saul, face down on the ground in dread and despair, that's where life without God ultimately leads. Nowhere to run, because the clock just ticks tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. No one to turn to in the face of death, and eternity, hopelessness, pitiable hopelessness. I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody who has a strong will and has made their mind up and you can talk and you can persuade and you can plead and they say, no, I am resolved. Well, if you live your life rebelling against God, then one day you're going to come up against the steady, firm, and terrifying resolve of God. His mind made up. His decision made. You know, Saul was experiencing that night a foretaste of hell. So get that image of of endless torture chambers or something like that out of your heads. Hell is that final absolute, enduring abandonment by the God that one has chosen to reject. An eternal closing of the door, a dreadful exclusion, the worst of all isolations. Everything good you see that you experienced in your life came from him. Although you, you, you never acknowledged him for it or thanked him or honoured him or God glorified him, And hell will involve the sudden dreadful realisation that you will never experience any of that goodness ever again. Like the expulsion from Eden, but far more enduring and far more complete as one is driven forever from the presence of the source of all light and life. Hell is the eternal experience of utter hopelessness. A midnight with no dawn ever to follow. And if I told you differently, I would be lying to you. Friends, desperate times call for desperate measures, but not all desperate measures are foolish ones. In fact, not all are the essence of tragedy. Sometimes it's actually desperation. It's recognising where you're headed that causes us to swallow our pride, recognise that we need to make a change and then admit our fault. Desperation can be your best friend because it can cause you to flee to safety and find refuge. It can cause you to ask for mercy and encounter grace. Grace. There's this absolutely wonderful passage in Isaiah. I'd love to read it to you. It's on the screens there. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. My friends, there is a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. God placed it there. And you can try to fill it with all of these different things, these distractions, these desires of our own pursuit, money, pleasure, career, relationships, religiosity, fame, travel, alcohol, intellect, But, but none of those will fill it because we've been made for relationship with the living God. We're made to seek after him. We're made to enjoy his presence and delight in it and glorify him. We're made for his life to be what fills us and his word to be what comforts us. And the, here's the wonderful thing, right? The same, same resolve that will judge works in the other direction too. God is resolved to save anyone who turns to him, anyone who turns to him from their sin, and he will save them. You see, that's the good news of Jesus. If you want to know about resolve, look at the God who would send his one and only son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. There's resolve And it's a gracious resolve. The one whose death can atone for our rebellion, who can bring us peace with God, if only we just stop rebellion and run to him. He's near. Jesus, you see, brings hope to the hopeless. I want to read Ephesians 2 to you again, but this time I'm going to read you the next verse as well. Verse 12. Remember that at that time, before You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What that's saying is that the tragedy of Saul need not be our tragedy. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Call to him now if you haven't done it yet. Why not now? Get on your knees. Admit your sin and ask for grace and forgiveness because he will surely give it. On that he has promised. Let the wanderer stop their wandering. Let the rebel stop their rebelling. You know, the most wonderful thing about being a Christian is that we've been given through no work of our own but the wonderful grace of God, as 1 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us, new birth into a living hope. Not hopeless, a living hope. If hell horrifies you, then heaven should fill you with this excited longing. For God is resolved to take you there. The picture of heaven that we see in Revelation is is way different to that dark night in Endor. It's a city filled with light and life, with healing and safety, with rejoicing and praise and gathering where the doors never close and the radiant and loving presence of God can be enjoyed forever. That is the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Hold on to it and treasure it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace to us in Jesus that we who were once dead have been made alive by what he has done on the cross in dying for us Lord help us never to despise that or, 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 or cheapen that but to treasure it as the wonderful source of life and hope that it really is and Father please use us, help us to be mouthpieces as we shine your light into a world that is darkened that others might turn and see Jesus and share that hope and come one day to meet him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.